Hello, and welcome to the Beef Cattle Health and Nutrition Podcast, Episode 14. I'm your host, Dr. John Cameron. This week, I'm pleased to have Dr. Claire Windeer as my guest. Dr. Windeer is an Associate Professor in Bovine Health Management at the University of Calgary School of Veterinary Medicine. Her research focuses on cow-calf health management and specifically around caring for newborn and pre-weaned calves. Dr. Windeer recently received the 2021 Merck Veterinary Award, which is a national award for her significant contributions in advancing the field of food animal health. Today, Dr. Windeer is going to talk to us about one of her main research interests, colostrum management in beef foods. Let's get started. Hi, Claire. Welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. Well, before we get into our topic for the day, uh, maybe ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about your background and what your current job entails at the University of Calgary. So I went to vet school at the University of Guelph, um, and then I came out to Alberta and I did a little bit of practice here in rural Alberta before going back to Guelph to do grad school where I studied um, vaccinating pre-wean dairy calves, actually. Um, I've been at the University of Calgary now since 2011, which is hard to believe. Um, I teach, my job's about half and half. So I teach in the DVM program. I teach epidemiology, health management, and calf health to our vet students. Uh, And then the other half of my job is research, um, where I mostly focus on pre-wean beef calf health and welfare. Yes, and you've done a lot of stuff on that in the last now 12 years. Hard to believe you've been there 12 years already, Claire. So that's been great. And you've helped us in our cow-calf surveillance network and and uh, done a lot of neat research. So we want to talk today about colostrum. And I'm sure lots of our listeners have heard us harp about this because we do it just about every other episode, it seems. But let's start by stepping back and talking a little bit about what exactly is in colostrum and why that makes it so important for newborn calves. Sure. Yeah. So I guess the critical thing with our, uh, all ruminant species really, but especially in cattle that we're the ones we care about, um, the bovine placenta. So the sort of sac that a calf lives in when it's in the uterus, um, doesn't allow any of the antibodies that are in the cow's bloodstream to cross through to the calf. So essentially when calves are born, they don't have any of the antibodies that you or I or any other animal would have floating around in their bloodstream, which are there as a really important thing to help protect against disease. Um, So the only way that calves can get that protection is by consuming colostrum. So colostrum is jam-packed full of those maternal antibodies, which we usually will call short form IgG, um, which is immunoglobulin G. It's just a type of of antibody um, that's really, really in high concentrations in colostrum. So if a calf doesn't get that, it doesn't get that important protection that it needs. There's also a whole bunch of other good things in colostrum, including fat and energy, just plain old good warmth that's critical when you're calving in the winter in Canada. Um, There's vitamins and minerals in it. Um, There's immune cells and also a number of other sort of peptides and molecules and good things in there that help um, sort of kickstart that immune system for those calves. Just before we leave that, those antibodies that are floating around in that colostrum are from the mother, right? They're the mother's sweater in her circulation, what she's been exposed to and what she has antibodies for. Yes, totally. And, and so 
we can maybe talk a little bit more about why why that matters. Um, but yes, sort of what that cow has been vaccinated against, as well as what she's been exposed to, are, is going to determine what kind of antibodies are in her bloodstream and what goes into her colostrum. And that process actually starts happening about three weeks before calving. So it's not the day she calves, suddenly those antibodies all show up in her colostrum. She starts um, transferring the antibodies in her blood um, into her colostrum about three weeks before um, before she calves. Right. And and I'll just add, you know, I'm I'm always interested in vitamins and minerals and, and vitamin A especially, and it changes depending on what we're talking about, but vitamin A especially it's only really transmitted to that calf through the colostrum. They really are highly dependent on vitamin A. That way they don't get very much uh, across the placenta during gestation either. Yeah, totally. Well, that leads us to our next question. And how long is that window open for that calf to absorb those antibodies through the colostrum? It's it's a limited time window and, and how does that work? Yeah, it, that's a really critical part of this. So we really only have the first 24 hours where the calf's guts are open uh, to absorb those antibodies from the cow. And what we've learned more recently, we used to always say, oh yeah, you've got a day, it's all good. We've learned more recently that the first four to six hours are really when the best absorption happens. And after that, it really starts to kind of trickle off and they don't absorb the colostrum nearly as well. Um, so the sooner the better is sort of always the, the 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 recommendation we make when it comes to colostrum. So how much does a calf actually need? It's the amount that a calf actually has to consume of colostrum if they're getting it in that first four or six hours. Yeah, that's always the question people want to know, right? Is how much do I give them? And and unfortunately, it's it's a, not a direct answer. It's a little bit complicated. Um, and so the cop-out is kind of, it depends. But there's some things we can use to help us make that decision, right? So um, how well they absorb the antibodies and how much they get the calf gets into its bloodstream depends on... Firstly, that thing I mentioned earlier, how well they absorb it, but also how much is in the colostrum itself, right? And so the volume that they need depends when they're getting it and how good the colostrum is that they're getting, right? So if it's later, they need more. If it's poor quality colostrum, they need more. Um, but if we're getting in there early in that first sort of um, four hours of life, um, we've done a little bit of research on this and we've compared different volumes and we found that the best volume was sort of our intermediate group where we fed them 1.4 liters. Um, that was a colostrum replacement product. Um, but those calves that we fed 1.4 liters to were the ones who got up and nursed fastest because that's the big thing, right? In dairy, we just feed them as much as we want to and we walk away and it doesn't matter. Um, but with beef calves, we want to kind of balance how much we give them, but not filling them up that they're so full that they don't want to get up and nurse from their mom again, because the cow's going to walk away and <laughs> forget about them if they're not, you know, if they're sitting there sleeping full, stuffed like a tick, right? So um, in our study, we found that sort of moderate volume of 1.4 liters was the optimal volume for those calves. And we fed that right at, at birth within an hour of birth. So Claire, what would be the general guidelines for the volume of colostrum that a calf would need? Yeah, so I would usually recommend at that first feeding, you're aiming for about one to one and a half liters in general, if possible, depending 
sometimes on how much you can get out of the cow. Um, but that's sort of the target for that first feeding. In total, during the first 24 hours, we want a calf to get three to five liters of colostrum. Ideally, we only have to give them the first dose and the rest will come from the cow in a perfect world. But if you do have a calf that, you know, say is an orphan or something like that, you're going to want to aim for that five liters over that first 24 hours of life with that first feed being early and at least one to one and a half liters. So you mentioned colostrum quality, and I know they sometimes test that in dairy cows. There's a fairly easy test for measuring that in dairy cows. Do we ever do that in beef cows? And and I'm, I'm sure it's not nearly as common there, but uh, what do we know about colostrum quality in beef cows? Beef qual- cow colostrum is much higher in IgG than dairy colostrum. So in the work that we've done in farms across Alberta, we've found on average 150 grams per liter of IgG in our beef cow colostrum. And that compares to dairy studies where we're usually seeing 65, maybe 75 um, grams per liter of IgG as, as an average. Um, so way, way higher concentrations in our beef, beef colostrum. Um, so there's lots of studies in dairy where they do you know, look at on-farm measurements of, of colostrum. And we figured, well, beef colostrum is a whole different product. We better look at this separately. Um, and so we did. And you can use the same device. It's called a BRICS refractometer. It's used for, uh, I think, winemaking and honey uh, manufacturing. Um, and so we looked at what thresholds in that BRICS refractometer you want to be aiming for with beef cow colostrum. Um, and so we found that you're really aiming for about 24% is kind of minimum. Ideally, you want over 30%. And all you have to do is put a little drop of colostrum in the device and it get, reads out um, a percentage for you. So those are the goals using using the BRICS refractometer. Right. So you're, you're measuring the colostrum itself. So if you were milking a cow, you could easily take a drop of that and stick it in that little machine. I got one in my office here and it's a pretty easy way to, to measure that colostrum quality. Yeah, totally. And the way we kind of look at it is if you put it, if you put a drop of colostrum in there and it's less than 24%, you probably want to either top up that calf or make sure they're getting a really high volume because it's not great colostrum. I wouldn't necessarily throw it out because, you know, beef colostrum is precious. Um, but if it's less than 24, you want to use that maybe carefully, maybe top them up with some supplemental product. If you have colostrum that reads over 30% on the bricks, that's really good stuff. And that's maybe what you're considering to save, to put some in the freezer. If the cow has extra, that's the good stuff you maybe want to keep a little bit extra of and whole and, um, you know, have it on hand in the freezer. So Claire, what factors would actually affect colostrum quality in beef cows? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's a number of things. Um, The first one that always kind of comes to mind, people always say, oh, heifers have poor quality colostrum. Um, But in our research, that's actually not what we found. The heifers actually have higher concentrations of IgG. But I think the challenges with heifers is often a volume issue. So they don't make as much. And they also often have the most compromised calves, right? So those are often, you know, they're the ones that we pulled, they might be weaker, you might have more issues with mismothering. So calves that are born to heifers do have a higher risk of having low levels of colostral um, antibody absorption, but it's not because their colostrum is not good. They actually do make high concentration IgG colostrum. Um, They just have a lot of other challenges that come along with being being a heifer. Some of the other factors are going to be how well vaccinated the herd is. 
Um, so, you know, we've done some work on this front and, and making sure that you're, you know, if you're putting a, if your scour is vaccinating your herd, that's going to improve those specific antibodies in the colostrum. So you're going to have better E. coli and rotavirus um, protection um, in your colostrum if those cows are vaccinated with the scours vaccine. Uh, but just generally having a good cow vaccine program is also going to help make sure that there's antibodies um, in that colostrum. Um, and then as, as you and I have chatted about in the past too, nutrition, right. And, and whether or not those cows have an adequate plane of nutrition, um, they can't, they can't make antibodies if they don't have enough groceries, right. So, um, they need to be on a, on a good plane of nutrition as well. So what's the evidence that colostral transfer is really important and we all know it is, but what does the data show when calves don't get enough colostrum? Yeah, there's tons of studies on this in dairy, especially, but there's quite a few beef studies as well. Um, and these calves, there's all sorts of numbers floating around out there, but they always consistently tell us that calves that don't get enough colostrum are at higher risk of getting treated for disease. They're at higher risk of dying before um, weaning. And some of our work's also shown that those calves don't have as good a gain through till weaning as well. So um, I could give you numbers if you want them, but they're high. <laughs> You know, in some of our recent work, you know, we had up to 20, 20 times higher risk of dying in calves that had the lowest level of IgG in their system, right? So despite the fact that we talk about this a lot, um, there's still definitely room, um, room to improve uh, the colostrum situation in our calves. The other number that I think is really interesting, and it's from it's from a meta-analysis of both beef and dairy and numbers across the world. So I don't know how well this number applies to our herds here in Canada, but they did an economic analysis and found that um, inadequate transfer of, of colostrum antibodies costs $112 per beef calf. Um, so I know producers often complain about the cost of colostrum replacer products, um, but I think that 112 bucks per calf is definitely um, hits your bottom line and is, is worth keeping in mind when you're trying to make these decisions about colostrum. I was involved in a project a number of years ago with Dr. Acton in, in uh, Ogama, Saskatchewan, and we showed that impact on weaning weight as well. And, and it was pretty significant. I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was well over 25 pounds at weaning. And so those calves didn't get adequate colostrum or didn't get optimal colostrum perhaps, but we could still show that difference. And, and that adds up too, right? Uh, if you have a significant number of calves like that. Yeah, totally. And our numbers actually, it was sort of a, it was a, a, a continuous relationship, meaning that the more IgG, the better the gain. So it wasn't right. like some threshold event where, you know, below this, they're, they're hooped in terms of growth. The more, more IgG they had, the better they grew in our study, which I thought was quite interesting. So how often do we see that uh, inadequate colostrum transfer in beef calves? How common a problem is it? Uh, we can go and sample these calves and test for it. What, how often do we see that they didn't get enough? Yeah, so between the work that we've done and also um, a large study that that Cheryl Waldner did and you guys at Saskatoon did, um, you know, we find between four and six percent of calves get absolute failure. So really, really low levels, the highest risk group of calves. Um, so that's not a huge percentage, but it's enough. Um, but in terms of sort of the adequate levels or the, the optimal levels we're really targeting, um, we're, we look at between 20 and 35 percent relatively 
consistently in the studies that have looked at this. So, you know, a third of our calves not really getting as much as they could. I think there's definitely an opportunity for improvement there. Yeah, that's always amazing when we when we see that. And and those calves are at a higher risk of dying. Now, they don't all die, obviously. Some of them will survive through to weaning, uh, but they probably weigh less than at weaning too. Totally. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, when I started doing this work, people often said, oh, colostrum is a dairy problem. You know, in the beef world, cows take care of it. We don't need to worry about it. And I agree in an ideal situation, the cows take care of it and we wouldn't have to worry. Um, but I think those, those numbers tell us there is, there is some opportunity here to help improve the survival and, and growth and reduce treatment rates in these calves. Well, that leads us right into the next question. So what are those risk factors for inadequate transfer of passive immunity? Can we, can we predict who's going to be more at risk of that? Yeah, that's a it's a great a great question, um, and I mentioned some of them earlier already in terms of colostrum quality, right? So being a heifer, um, not being well not being well vaccinated, um, I kind of break this into three categories. Really, there's the cow, there's the calf, and there's the environment. So the cow factors we've talked about in terms of colostrum. Um, production. Um, in terms of the calf, you know, being an assisted calf, um, we know they're at higher risk of not getting enough colostrum, having poor vigor, um, even being a bigger calf, right? So it is sort of a function of body weight. So the bigger calves need more colostrum to get enough of those antibodies to kind of protect their whole system. Um, one thing that we found in our one of our studies, which we kind of took us a while to puzzle through it, but we actually found colostrum intervention was a risk factor for calves having lower um, passive immunity. And we kind of, as we thought about it, we, you know, we kind of said, well, these are the calves that are at risk to begin with because someone decided to intervene. And I think what it's telling us is the interventions they were using just weren't quite enough for these calves, right? So I always kind of suggest to people, if you think calves need help with colostrum, there's no harm in being aggressive, right? You know, not not with the tube. Don't be too aggressive with the tube. But but you know, if you think they need help, they probably need more than you think they need, right? So I think that's what that study was telling us: is the colostrum interventions we were using um, just probably weren't quite enough for those calves. Would that also mean that the producer was maybe wasn't intervening early enough? That they intervened, but they just intervened too late. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point. That's that. That's. I think sometimes people, you know, everybody's busy during calving season, and they're not necessarily sitting around waiting for things to do. Um, but I think getting in and getting those calves dealt with sooner helps on the other end, right? In terms of the the treatments and things like that. So I think um, not hesitating too too much, and definitely in that first four hours, if they haven't got up and 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 you're not certain that they did get a good you know a good suck, then I would jump in there sooner for sure. Um, and then the other one that I would add is the environment, right? So dirty pens, dirty cows, and dirty equipment are the three that I think about in terms of the environment, because any sort of contamination, whether that's, you know, a calf doing a nosedive into a fecal pat before they suck, or if that's, you know, a, a bacteria on the end of the tube that you're feeding them, those things can, can reduce how well a calf absorbs the antibodies that they do receive. Um, so the environment's also something that we don't always think about, um, but is an important part of this picture as well. The other environmental factor I often think about is temperature. So tell us about, you know, if you're calving in 
February and March and you get a spell of cold weather, how important that is in terms of intervention. Yeah, that's a great point, John, because I think there is actually some studies that have looked at that and and calves that are, are hypothermic or chilled don't absorb the antibodies um, as well as they would if they were, you know, not chilled or hypothermic. And I think it also impacts the vigor of the calf, right? If they're a calfsicle in a snowbank, um, they're not getting up and sucking as soon um, or as vigorously as they would if they were a warm calf. Um, so I think that's the, and, and, you know, we're all a little bit busier during calving season when you've also got to worry about plowing snow and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but definitely the weather is another thing that can get in the way. And, and uh, you know, I think those are the ones sometimes where it's like, I, I'm not going to play games with this. I'm just going to get in there and supplement this calf because um, it's cold and there's a million other things going on. And it helps keep warm that calf up as well, right? Colostrum is one of the things that I use as part of a hypothermic calf treatment, right? You got a hypothermic calf, put it in a hot box and tube it with some colostrum. Um, that's going to do wonders for that calf. Yeah, good point. So how and when should a producer decide to intervene? Obviously, we'd like Mother Nature to take care of everything and every calf to jump up and suckle and get adequate colostrum, but it doesn't always work that way. So how do we decide who we should intervene on? Yeah. And that was one of the sort of big research questions I had when I started here. I was like, you know, in in dairy, this is easy. You just, everybody gets it. And there's all sorts of protocols out there. But in beef, we have this totally different world where we have to make this decision, right? We don't want to get in the way of a cow doing her job and feeding her calf. And we don't want to mess with that bonding process, but we also have to get in there, um, you know, before it's too late. Cause we do have that closing window that we talked about. Um, so one of my first grad students actually looked at this question and we found two major factors you can use to help decide um, when you want to, when to intervene. Um, the first one being no surprise, but the assisted calves. So our assisted calves are at much higher risk of not consuming colostrum on their own. And then she looked at a whole bunch of different things and different tests, but the one that really floated to the top was suckle reflex. So when, if you check the suckle reflex of a newborn calf, it gives you a lot of information about whether or not that calf is going to get up and consume colostrum on its own. Um, and so if you, if you pull a calf and it has a strong suckle reflex, so you just stick your finger in its mouth and it latches on and wants to suckle your finger, those calves are around 50-50 as to whether or not they're going to get up and suck. So those ones, I kind of take it depending on the time of day, what else is going on, right? If it's the middle of the sunny afternoon and you got time to kind of let them, you know, do their thing, you can put them in a pen and watch them, then I might do that. If it's two in the morning and it's a stupid heifer who's not sure about her baby or whatever, if there's other things going on, I'm probably going to get in there um, for any assisted calving and do something about the colostrum. If they have a weak suckle reflex, those ones are 98% likely to not consume colostrum on their own. So if I pull a calf and I stick my finger in its mouth within the first 10 minutes after birth, and it has a weak suckle reflex, so it just kind of doesn't want to latch onto my finger. Um, those ones, I know they need help getting colostrum right away because there's a pretty good chance they're not going to do it on their own in a timely fashion. And then the last kind of group that we found in that was even in our unassisted calves that had a weak suckle reflex, about three quarters of those didn't consume colostrum on their own quickly enough. Um, and so that scenario, it's like, I'm not going to recommend people run around the calving field and check the suckle reflex on every you know calf that's born on its own. But I do think it's an opportunity if you're having issues with early calf health, if you've got a bunch of scouring calves early in life or you know, you've got calves dying early, 
and you can't figure out why and you think, well, maybe it's a colostrum issue, then I think there's maybe a, an opportunity to like, oh, let's check some of these unassisted calves and see what their suckle reflex is. Maybe we need to be more aggressive on the colostrum in those ones. Um, so I think that's maybe more details than you wanted on that. But I, I think that kind of gives a little bit more information because it's a tricky one, right? People don't want to intervene unnecessarily, but I think those two factors kind of help you decide when to get in there and start messing around. No, I think that's that's great advice. And we had Dr. Homerowski on a number of episodes ago and briefly talked about that, but it's good to have more detail on that. It also uh, brings up what Dr. Pearson was talking about is that uh, not all dystocias are assisted. And so some of those calves are being born and they still had difficult calving and we just didn't see it happen. Totally. Yeah. And so those calves probably need to be assisted as well. Yeah. Especially if you look out and you see a calf that's yellow, um, if there's that meconium staining. So even if it was born on its own, but you see that it's got some of that yellow staining, you're probably going, mm, maybe that went on a little bit longer, even though she got it done. It maybe went on a little bit longer. Maybe I should pop out and, and check the suckle reflex on that calf because it might need a little bit of help. Yeah, yeah, good point. So now we've decided we need to intervene in this calf uh, for one of these reasons. So what's the most preferable supplementation method? Uh, I would say 100%, I would always pick the dam's colostrum first and foremost. That's the best option. If you have a shoot that is safe, you can do this safely. I've collected enough colostrum samples uh, in my career to know this is not always an easy task. But um, I think if you can feed the dam's colostrum, that's always what we want that calf to get. If you don't have that, if that's not an option, if the cow's dead or wild or whatever. Um, the second best option would be another cow from the same herd. Cause like we talked about earlier that those antibodies in the colostrum come from the immune system of the cow. So the cows in your herd are immune to the things that your herd needs um, and have, have, you know, comes from their exposure to whatever pathogens are in your particular environment and in your herd. So um, colostrum from your own um, own farm is best. Um, next on the list, and I think we may talk about this in more detail, I would go with a colostrum replacer product, um, which there's a lot of commercial products available and we can chat more about those. Um, the one that I would not have on my shelf or in my freezer would be dairy colostrum. And we can talk more about that as well. But um, yeah, ideally the cow, then somebody else from your farm replacement, if you need it, never dairy. <laughs> That's my synopsis. Okay. Well, let's talk about dairy first uh, because years ago, I, I mean, when I was a new grad, when dinosaurs rolled roamed the earth, yeah. <laughs> uh, we commonly would buy colostrum from dairies. We would think, well, that's a that's a reasonable option. They have lots of it and we could buy it, but why don't we want to use colostrum from a dairy? So the, the, the challenge with dairy colostrum is it's just a totally different product. So our beef calves colostrum that they are intended to consume is usually 150 grams per liter on average versus, as I said earlier, you know, dairy colostrum is going to be best case scenario somewhere 65, 75 grams per liter on average. So it's just a much lower concentration of IgG than what our beef calves are intended to receive. The other big thing that we worry about, and, and I guess and that is if they give you the good stuff. Sometimes they're actually giving you transition milk, which is, you know, second, third, fourth day of milking. And that stuff, you know, I've measured some and it's like 20 grams per liter. It's just not 
good enough for our beef calves. Right. So they call trans, sometimes they call transition milk colostrum because they can't put it in the bulk tank, but those cows are not putting out the same number of antibodies after their second or third milking. Absolutely. Yeah. They're, and they're cranking out huge volumes, right? So it's just very much more dilute than beef colostrum. The other thing is they might be giving you something you don't want. So there's a huge biosecurity risk that comes along with getting dairy colostrum. You know, the big one that comes to mind is Yoni's disease, of course, right, which is very prevalent in our dairies um, and not something we want to be introducing into our beef herds. So that's the other big concern that I have with that dairy colostrum. Good. So let's talk about colostrum replacers. They're our sort of next viable option if we can't milk that cow well, or maybe the third choice, but let's say we don't have a cow to get colostrum out of. So what about them? Are they, are they a reasonable option? They are, and I, th- I think they're actually a pretty critical tool to have on hand during calving season, but there's a huge variation in the quality of those products. And as I like to tell my vet students, some aren't worth the package they come in. Um, So there's a few things to kind of keep in mind when you're looking at those products. So the first being you want a product that's actually colostrum derived. So some products are made from colostrum where they freeze dry it or, or, or um, yeah, they freeze dry it. That stuff is better absorbed by calves than the alternative, which is a serum-derived product, which is essentially they take slaughterhouse blood and they extract the antibodies out of it. And that stuff, the calves' guts just don't absorb it as well as they do the maternally-derived. So when you buy colostrum products, you want to check and make sure that it's coming from colostrum, not from serum or blood. Um, And then the other thing is how much IgG is in those bags. And so I generally recommend the 100 gram bags that that you can get at least 100 grams of IgG into that calf in that first feed. And the reason is, I think, you know, I'm, I'm relatively risk averse, but all these downstream effects that we've talked about, if you know you need to get in there and help them, I, I don't really understand why you wouldn't just be aggressive about it and get a good dose in them. So in total, a calf should get between three and 500 grams of IgG in the first 24 hours. And so obviously we don't want to be feeding all of that to a calf. That's going to get expensive and be a lot of work, but, um, you know, at least that first dose, we want to get a good solid dose of IgG into them to make sure that they're covered as best as possible. So, you know, there's a lot of products that are lower than that 50 or 60 grams, those products are okay if you've got a calf that you're like, mm, I think it sucked, but I, I think I just want to top it up a little bit. Sure, then go with one of those lower IgG products. But if you have a calf that you know needs help with colostrum because it hasn't sucked and it's getting close to that four hours, I would just go with those 100 grams and make sure you're really giving that calf a strong start. That's great advice. So they can look at the label and see how many grams of antibodies there are there, and they can make sure that it's derived from colostrum and not from serum. And your local vet can probably help you sort those out as well if you're looking for some advice on what to buy. Yeah, totally. So let's say we do have some extra colostrum from a cow that we had to milk out. How long can we store that or how should we store it uh, so we can use it in another calving down the road? Yeah, that's a great strategy. And I I always recommend that people have some of that on hand if they can. Um, And so the best um, thing to do is freeze it as quickly as possible because you want to reduce any chance that it's sitting around growing bacteria. So if you've made the decision, I'm going to milk out a little extra from this cow and I'm going to freeze it. 
freeze it right away because if it sits around, it just starts growing bugs like crazy. It's the perfect growth media for bacteria, especially if it's sitting in the warm, um, the warm room in the barn or something like that. So um, freeze it quickly. And I, I like the suggestion I picked up somewhere along the line of using Ziploc bags. You want the good freezer ones that seal nicely, but the high ratio surface to volume ratio means that they freeze really quickly. It also means that they're easier to thaw out. So when it's two in the morning and you're trying to thaw this out, you're not waiting um, for days for that to, to thaw out. And, and, I, and I think it's important to remember never to put colostrum in the microwave to thaw it because that will denature or kill those ba- um, antibodies. So you want to make sure that you're defrosting them in a warm water bath and that high surface um, to volume ratio makes that an easier process to do. And how long can we keep that colostrum in the freezer? They say it lasts for up to a year. So you can, if you still have some from last year, you can use it on some of your early calves. If you're, you know, I wouldn't necessarily keep it forever, but um, they say a year, it should be good in the freezer. So now I'm supplementing this calf and I have a choice. I can tube it or I can bottle feed it. Is there any difference? Does it matter? Yeah, this was a big question that I had as well when I started doing some of this work, because there's lots of work in the dairy industry where they've looked at this but nobody had looked at it for our beef calves. And so we did a study looking at bottle versus tube. And the reason it's an important question is because with the, with the bottle, something called the esophageal groove closes, which is essentially means that the milk goes or the colostrum goes directly from the esophagus into the stomach and it bypasses the rumen and it needs to get to the stomach so that it can be um, digested and the antibodies can be absorbed downstream. So we compared three groups. We had a group that were tube fed um, within the first hour of birth, after birth. We had a group that was bottle fed, all the same um, colostrum. And then we had a third group, which of course there were some of our bottle fed calves who rejected the bottle and we ended up having to tube them. So interestingly, in that study, we found the calves who were bottle fed um, were the ones who got up and nursed the soonest after we had intervened. So we fed them with the bottle at birth and they were up by about two hours nursing from their dam, which made us pretty happy. Um, The interesting thing also was that the calves who didn't finish the bottle that we had to go in and tube feed the rest those were the worst groups. So they took about nine hours to get up and nurse from their from their dam, which we kind of said, hey, that's interesting. So if you try to bottle feed a calf and it doesn't finish it, that's someone to keep an eye on because that's telling us that that calf might need an, a second feed or might just need you to keep a close eye on them and make sure that they're, they're getting up and sucking. Um, in terms of the actual passive immunity, in all of our study groups, we had pretty good passive immunity. We didn't have any difference between the groups. And I think part of that was we were just getting in there so early that something is better than nothing when you're in there (laughs) that early. Um, And so the root didn't really matter too, too much. So in the end, I think practically what it means is if you can get them to drink from a bottle, that's probably your best bet. But if it's two in the morning and it's between doing it now and doing it in the, you know, in the morning uh, after you've had some sleep, I would just go ahead and tube it. So it's just sort of a matter of what allowed you to get it done. Um, So I'm not sort of like, it has to be one or the other. I think bottle is best, um, but tube tube feeding is better than nothing. Right. And yeah, if time's time's important, then uh, tube feeding sure beats bottle feeding. That's for sure. Yeah. 
I make all my DVM students bottle feed uh, a baby beef calf just so they understand the patience that it takes. Exactly. So can we assess how well a producer is doing in terms of colostrum management? How would we go about doing that in the herd? Yeah. And similar to a lot of this stuff, there's tons of work in dairy calves, but not a lot in beef calves about what this should look like. Um, But we actually did a study using the same device that we talked about for measuring colostrum quality. And you can use that to look at antibodies in the calf's blood. So all you have to do is you take blood samples or get your vet to take blood samples of of any calf that's between 24 hours of age up to one week. And so they have to be 24 hours. So they've finished absorbing all of those antibodies. After about a week, their antibodies start dropping down. So it's sort of one to seven days. You can go out, sample any calf that's of that age frame. And then essentially you just get the serum out of that blood. So you can spin it down or let it sit and take some of that serum. And then you put it on the BRICS refractometer the same way you would use um, the same way you would do with the colostrum. Um, And we figured out that you're looking for at least 7.9% on that BRICS. Um, Ideally, you're going to be over 8.7%. So 7.9 is kind of the bare minimum. You want to have as few calves as possible that are below 7.9%. And you want as much of your herd as possible to be over that 8.7. It's expected you're going to have a few kind of in that middle range, um, but the ideal target is above that 8.7. Great. Well, that's a pretty easy procedure. The toughest part is probably getting the blood sample, but once you've got that, it's a pretty cheap uh, sort of test to sort of assess that and see how well you're doing. And and I think it's useful. I do a lot of disease investigations. and I I did one last spring that was septicemia in a Cafford and the producer thought that they were doing everything fine in terms of colostrum management. And turns out it wasn't quite as clear cut as that after all. And these calves were getting septicemia as a result and, and getting pretty sick. So we see that as a root cause in lots of outbreaks. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I don't think a lot of beef herds are going to find it super practical to do this as a routine monitoring tool unless they're super keen. But I do think it's a great disease investigation tool. Absolutely. And the other option is, you know, at pretty much every vet, vet clinic is going to have um, just a regular or even a digital refractometer. And they can also run the bloods in clinic um, and with the serum total protein on a, on one of those refractometers. And so that the, the threshold we found for beef You want at least 5.1, ideally over 5.8, similar kind of thing to the BRICS. Um, So every vet clinic could run those. They they use those refractometers for all sorts of things in small animal. So that's the other option if you don't want to buy a BRICS. If you've got a vet coming out to do a disease investigation, they could also run the bloods in their clinic. Great. Well, that's very practical advice, Claire. Thank you so much for being here and and helping explain all this so clearly. Uh, I'm sure I'll try to get you back again because you have lots of other neat things we could discuss in future podcasts. So thanks very much. Thanks so much for having me, John. It was fun. That's our show for this week. Thanks to all of you for listening to the podcast. And thanks again to my guest, Dr. Claire Windier from the University of Calgary School of Veterinary Medicine. Thank you as well to our sponsors, the Alberta Beef Producers and the Beef Cattle Research Council. Please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions or comments or would like to suggest topics that you'd like to see covered in future episodes, please email us at bchnpodcast at gmail.com. Take care until next time.